This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz. I'm a senior analyst at Rappaport, um, and our guest today is Anish Agarwal, who is a partner at Gemdex. Gemdex is a diamond industry advisory firm that works with the trade on a range of services ranging from rough analysis, strategy, finance, research, and uh, analytics, and the list goes on. Anish, we've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for some time. Um, I'm so glad that we've, we have the opportunity. So welcome to the, to the podcast. It's great to see you. Thank you very much, Abby. Great to see you too. And I'm certainly very happy to be here. Um, perfect. Because um, I think that uh, I think you bring a, a, a bit of a different angle to what we what we usually the, the our typical guest that we have on the podcast. In that you're a service provider, and you you you're in the industry similar to Rapport in a way. You're in the industry, but looking at it from from the outside as well. Um, and so I think maybe. I gave a brief description of what Gemdux does, but um, maybe you can give us a bit of background about the company and um, and a bit more detail on what your day-to-day activity looks like. No, sure. Thanks a lot, Avi. And uh, believe it or not, my first experience in the diamond industry was back in 2000. And uh, I was involved in a failed internet startup. So the bright idea with between me and the partners at the time was to do an online trading platform. It may sound familiar to you, Avi. Uh, and Rappaport, uh, we, uh, we screwed it up, suffice to say, and uh, neither had the competence nor familiarity to really make it work. But what we did in the meantime was we, we fell in love with the industry. So we set up a new business, which focused on advisory services. And what we could see at that time, back in 2000, was it was around about the time when De Beers launched its supplier of choice strategy. Uh, Gareth Penny was at the helm of that strategy. And we could see very quickly that the industry was going to go through what you could describe as a rapid change, an overhaul, a disruption. And, and in many ways, we're still living that today, right? So, But we could see in, in 2000 that, that we were going to kickstart a whole range of, of changes. And we thought there would be an opportunity to help people in the diamond industry navigate that change and, and work closely with them. So I guess today we work in a couple of different areas. I think our core DNA is analytics. And that would in some ways be similar to, to you, Avi. And we work with mining companies on what you could call markets facing work. What's the market doing at the moment? How might it evolve? How might you bring diamonds to market? What are the pros and cons? What are the demand side risks and opportunities for a given miner? And some of that is analytical. Most of that is analytical. Some of that's even marketing oriented. How do you as a miner connect further downstream? The second area of work we do is we work with, I guess you could call the investor community, people who are not in the industry, but want to get in some way or another. And we want to help them get into the industry in a successful way. Uh, so we've done some work with banks who've, who've tried to buy assets in, in our sector and, and other parties. And the third area is, I guess, we work closely with what these days is referred to as a, as the midstream. So people between the miners and, and the jewelers. I don't know when that term came in, but I'm going to continue using the term midstream. And um, we we help them with their strategy, but also importantly with their 
key stakeholder relationships and especially De Beers, which is still a major supplier to the market. Right, right. So, um, so there's a lot there, and uh, and we'll get to each of those um, those points. Um, but I'm 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 quite interested because um, today we're seeing a lot more talk about strategy and and navigating the various issues that come to, that are that are affecting the market. Um, you know, sustain be it sustainability, bank financing, or alternative financing, um, or whatever the case may be. Um, but what were those issues back in 2000 that you foresaw um, that the industry needed at that time or, or was going to affect the industry? And, and did those actually come to fruition? Yeah, I mean, I love what I love about that question is we can answer that retrospectively, right? right, so right. In retrospect, you always get to get to get everything right. But we thought the key thing back then were two or three things only. And, and we were very... Uh, early in our journey in the diamond sector and we didn't really know a great deal back then and you could even argue that that's still the case today but certainly we've got the experience behind us now and there were two things that that really struck us back in 2000 the one uh, one area was that we really as an industry needed to be more demand focused so we needed consumers to engage with the product more and we bought into the basic premise of of, of supplier of choice which was if consumers want diamonds more, the industry will be more successful. That seems like an obvious thing when you say it, mm. but it wasn't what the industry was doing historically. What we saw was major miners adopting what you call supply side strategies in economics. So if the market was buoyant, they'd put more diamonds in the market. And if the market was 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 more, more difficult, they'd, they'd withhold supply. Yeah, And that had been the primary thing the industry was doing. Generally, as a sector, we were really underspending on marketing compared to other luxury, uh, other luxury segments. So that's something that we could see back in, in 2000. The other thing was just that these were businesses generally, especially in the midstream, that had not had that wave of, and I wouldn't call it necessarily professionalism because it's just, it gives the wrong word. These businesses were very professionally run. But I'd say there was there was quite a lot of informality in operation, right? Informality with the way these businesses operated. Mm. And we saw that that was going to change just because there were going to be more rules and regulations. And, and indeed, with both of those things, we have seen that the industry has progressed a great deal. Uh, there's a lot more, for better or worse, formality along structures, whether that's financial structures or corporate structures. There's been a lot more engagement with the idea of cons consumer-driven marketing. Uh, so I think those were the issues we saw back in 2000 and, mm. and to some extent they're still relevant today. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think, um, I think there was some foresight involved there as well, um, <laughs> that, that, that you managed to get in, get in, in, into the industry at that time and, and recognize that because that's exactly what happened. Um, that certainly that more formal, um, and more transparent, um, structure of the midstream um, has has come about um, and and was was certainly evolving. I think particularly after the the two thousand and eight crisis. Um, but I mean, looking back at at supply of choice, supply of choice from what I remember and it was actually slightly before my, I came into the industry. So I, I sort of came in at the at the tail end of it. Um, and um, but supply of choice was was trying to get. Um, s manufacturers in the midstream 
to get involved in in marketing diamonds to consumers, developing brands and um, and uh, yeah, uh, developing brands that one that the industry could could um, could uh, use as a marketing tool to to consumers, and that of course um, coincided with the beers scaling down its generic marketing spend and going into branding itself. Um, but it proved to be very difficult for the midstream. Um, why, why is that? Is that a case of, uh, and we don't see too many midstream brands um, today that are, that are active. Um, so is that a case of just needing to do what you do best and that's just manufacture diamonds and uh, leave the marketing to the marketers? Oh, look, it's, first of all, I'm definitely taking your, uh, your compliment about foresight. There was definitely no luck involved in any of that. Um, <laughs> <You should. laughs> when, we look at, when we look at the midstream, I think that supplier of choice, certainly in its first iteration, had the right idea about making consumers. Uh, if consumers wanted diamonds more, then the diamond industry would be successful because the industry depends on a person buying a diamond in, in a store or online. So, so that was true. And the fact that we were conscious of that, I think, has kick-started a great deal of good work our industry has done. But it, it was definitely the case that you can't easily take, and we see this in a number of different industries, a midstream player and turn them into consumer marketers. Mm. Because it's not in their core skill set. It's not something that they've got the capabilities or the experience in doing. So what we found, what we see, and this is, I guess, where De Beers is today, it's, it's about the supply chain working collaboratively together. And it's not just De Beers, it's the whole industry. Collaboration and working together are going to be the key key thing that we need to achieve in the, coming, in the coming few years. So what we see is that it was very challenging for, for, uh, it was very challenging for midstream players and site holders to engage in consumer marketing. Many of them didn't have the skills. And perhaps that journey was in retrospect, done too quickly, right? Perhaps we needed to think about different ways that same objective could be achieved and, and what role the midstream players could, could, could have in that, in that consumer narrative. And I think that we're at that stage today where this is more relevant than ever before because consumers don't just care about the product they buy anymore. They care about the journey the product went into, mm. the journey the product's been on to get to that consumer in the first place and how did that how did that journey impact the world whether it's socially environmentally and and, and so forth so the midstream's got a crucial role to play play in that right um well they've got a crucial role to play in being transparent enough so that their role can be um used in this in the storytelling um but i think there's also another element um you know compared today versus two th the early 2000s is that um, today the midstream is you know is more engaged with consumers there's social media um, you know that's really putting any company um, face to face with uh, with the with the end consumer whereas before with su supply of choice you know a manufacturer had to think about a proprietary cut that they could um, that they could brand. Uh, you know, and and very few would be successful. You know, you think about the Leo cut, and 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 not many more that that could be branded in that way. Um, but uh, but but it's it's interesting the, the how that has developed. And so when you you know fast forward to today, when you're working with with um, the midstream, 
um, how how much of that sort of thinking is um, is involved in your in your building strategy with uh, with with companies? I would imagine it varies from from company to company, mm. but is there a marketing angle there? No, it's a it's a really interesting question, Avi, and it's a very timely question as well. So, if it's okay, I want to go on a bit of an arc on 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 this, right? So, sure. just bear with me for a moment. So, if we look at you know, these days, our thinking is very much dominated by what's happened in the last 12 months or the last 18 months. We've had a major global crisis in the form of COVID-19, and, and many industries have responded very, very differently to that. So, but going into the crisis, the industry had struggled, right? 2019 was a very difficult year for many people in the trade. And before that, we had a couple of years of, of difficulty where we hadn't really seen a great deal of, of rough and polished price appreciation. It had been stable, and that in of itself is great. Hmm. But we hadn't had that big value uplift that we have seen some of the other luxury products have. And so when the wheels ground to a halt in, in kind of March, April last year, and the world sort of shut down, we wanted to get busy. And our premise was, can we, can we help the diamond industry be in a better place post-COVID than it was pre-COVID. So we thought we'd have a bit of time on our hands. And, and while things were going slowly, uh, we, we thought we could, we could spend that time on, on strategizing this. And we did a number of things, actually, in this area. But one big area was the issue of sustainability, and in particular, the issue of carbon neutrality. And we'd seen great work being done by major miners, We'd seen good work being done by retailers, luxury retailers in particular, and not just in diamonds. And somehow we didn't want the midstream to be, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a weak link in that supply chain, because mm. there's no point doing good work at the top of the supply chain and then at the bottom of the supply chain, but, but the middle isn't, isn't robust. Yeah. And so we actually came up with an initiative, which was a collective initiative called Sustainably Brilliant. And Sustainably Brilliant was an initiative we did with our nine site holder clients uh, that, are, that are companies that are working and buying from De Beers. And we got around one table and we said, listen, guys, we think that sustainability and carbon neutrality is an important theme. And we as an industry can take more of a lead in that. And actually, the response was great. And we brainstormed ways of doing it practically as well as in the more abstract way. Mm. And we got external consultants. We took learnings from other industries. De Beers themselves gave some valuable input into this. And that initiative has endured. And people have really looked at that enthusiastically. And that's just one of the things that we've seen the midstream has embraced. And we think that is going to continue. Yeah. Well, we've just put out a, a, a very extensive issue on um, on social responsibility um, of our um, of Rappaport magazine, and I wrote I wrote one of the articles, and one of and in speaking to different people along the supply chain, the one concern was that um, that there is that weak link within the manufacturing sector um, when it comes to environmental awareness and um, and uh, carbon neutrality in particular. And um, and so we, you know, I, I would mention that um, you know the sustainably brilliant program um, as an example. And but I do think that there's still a lot more more work to do because it's not a it's not an issue that the that the midstream has thought about um, extensively, uh, you know, pre-COVID. That um, 
the the social responsibility discussion was always about um, people, um, and and that's fine, that's important, of course. But then planet has also has crept into the conversation as in a in a, a very meaningful way. So what is the ultimate goal? You know, we always hear from the likes of De Beers and Signet about you know Project Twenty Thirty that by then they'll be um, carbon neutral. W- what is the sort of timeline or goal? in working with these nine manufacturers? So I think that timeline's definitely going to be a part of it. And I'd be very surprised if our clients didn't get there to a carbon neutral position by by 2030, and some will get there well before that. And that's that's very positive. Also, how you do it matters. Yeah. So you can be carbon neutral today if you buy a bunch of offsets and 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 end up with a carbon net carbon zero mm-hmm. footprint. So it's the sustainability is key. And how do you do? How do you bring into your business practices that are better for the environment that do reduce a carbon footprint and and actually do contribute positively? And I think although the midstream has this type of reputation for not being very conscious. Actually, the bigger challenge is that they are conscious, but it's done informally. Informally means that they do it in their personal capacity rather than in a company capacity. You know, a lot of the midstream players that we deal with in India and and many in Israel as well, historically, they're very charitable individuals. They work very closely with the communities and and try to improve them and, and try to contribute positively, have a big positive social impact. Yeah. So it's about bringing those those stories into their business and making those stories part of that supply chain narrative. That's a journey we're trying to do. Mm. The journey here has got to be not just, okay, diamonds have gone from A to B to C to D and so on. And in the middle, there, there was some cutting and polishing that happened to be carbon neutral. It's about telling a story that is a, a positive social story so that when a consumer buys that diamond, they have a a more holistic view as to what that diamond diamond represents. It's quite important because when we look at how COVID has played out, a lot of the measures that COVID uh, were, were put in place were about societal benefits. They're about, you know, we're doing this lockdown to protect the vulnerable in society. We, right. we, and, and so it's a natural evolution that we now think of the planet more broadly and say, look, what we're doing now could have a big impact on 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 society and, and and economics and environmental concerns further down the line and so that type of consumer will make different purchasing decisions getting that narrative right about the product is going to be key right um i mean there there is that um th- that sense of 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 doing it for the sake of doing it because it's the right thing to do and and uh, you know, it just struck me from my experience with um, with many of the India, the larger Indian site holders, is that they are so tra- uh, charitable, and many of the owners of the companies are also very humble and modest, and so they don't like to flaunt their charity work, you know. And 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 but today, it's such a such an integral part of a of a company's messaging that they they almost have to be a bit less modest in their, you know, which is in a way against their nature. But um, what, I, what I wanted to ask is that, um, you know, so, so the project is initiated and supported because everyone is on board, but to what extent is it being um, requested or, or demanded from those um, retailers who are buying diamonds from, 
from those manufacturers? Is it um, is there a demand side that's pulling companies to be more environmentally aware and um, socially aware in general? Sure, I mean absolutely. And and you know, just before I go on to answer that question, totally echo your position about the modest nature and people not wanting to talk about the charitable work we that they're doing and in fact that was and is the biggest stumbling block that people almost feel it's not charity if you start talking about it right or it's done for the wrong reason yeah. so so i think <laughs> it, it, that that is that is you've identified actually the biggest obstacle in an odd kind of way so look i mean i think that i think there isn't probably at this stage truth be told no explicit demand for this right but what we are seeing is that our clients in the midstream believe that if they have a diamond that is attached to a, a carbon story, uh, you know, about reducing carbon footprint, then those diamonds will become more marketable. So, in fact, the commercial reason, you know, because very often when you talk about, you know, doing things for the sake of doing things, that tends not to work in the long run. That doesn't, yeah. you know, people need to almost have a commercial reason for doing it. And and the commercial hook was that actually we think our polished diamonds will be more marketable. That was the initial commercial mm, hook mm. that are many of the site holders we work with kind of bought into. And I think a year down the line. Th that's a hook that you pitched to them. And it's a hook that they acknowledged themselves. Right. So okay. very quickly, what has happened is within weeks, even, uh, I was going to say months, but weeks, of starting this 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 work, many of our clients engaged with their customers, saying that they were going to do this work, and that they were going to start the measurement of carbon of their carbon footprint, and they wanted their input in it. They didn't want to sell diamonds to them. They wanted to they wanted to get their input in this and see where it landed. But of course, it made them more marketable as a, as a supplier of diamonds too. And so mm -hmm. we are seeing that that is an advantage in embarking on this journey when selling polished, and we think that advantage will grow rather than recede over time mm. um it's it's interesting because the, the the bottom line of the article that i that i wrote was that um and and this is something that uh, i don't know if you'd want to be quoted um directly in the podcast so i'll I'll, um, I'll keep him unnamed but if you want to see his name and i'll tell you anish afterwards um, you can read the article, um, but he he stressed that that it's economics and not ethics that are pushing the drive towards sustainability and and um, general ESG mm. um, strategy within the business community, and and I think that is the case. Um, so so it's uh, it's I think we will see more manufacturers because you know nine manufacturers that you're working with. Um, is still a, a, a small, a relatively small proportion of the of the bigger um, diamond cutting community, I would say. No, and and we always thought it was great to start, and and you know to kind of build on that. I think it's absolutely the case that when we started this, we knew that okay, nine out of eighty odd site holders is whatever it is, ten ten odd percent of of, of the site holder community. But we thought actually, if you start this, more will follow, and more will will jump in, and some will see this and say, actually, I'm, I was doing this already. Let me talk about it more. Mm. And other people will say, well, actually, that's an interesting thing to do. It, it's something we can, we can jump on and, and build on and do our own thing on. So it's, it's, it's definitely going to be the midstream, which is just a lot more fragmented than the mining sector. Yeah. You know, if, 
they're very quick to adopt each other's innovations and very quick to adopt each other's behaviors if they see a commercial or, or an advantage or a business advantage in a holistic sense. And that's why the midstream's been so efficient and successful already because they are so adaptable. Right. Um, and, and I think we will see more of a pull through from the retail sector that uh, more retailers are going to be demanding these from their suppliers. Um, another another topic that's kind of been a um, it's, well, it's been a hot topic um, besides COVID and sustainability is um, that of diversity. Um, and uh, certainly in the in the in the corporate world of the United States, we're seeing more women being brought on on board more. Um, you know, people of color that uh, that are, um, are 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 being you know co opted onto boards of directors to bring a, a more diverse thinking. I think more than anything to to company strategy. Um, and when I think of the midstream, um, and maybe less so of, to, of the mining sector, but certainly in the midstream, I, I'm not seeing too much diversity. Um, and and so and so I know I know that in in our brief conversations um, in the past you, you have mentioned that this is something that you're that you're working on. Um, so how do you tackle diversity in the in the manufacturing sector? Look, it's it's exactly as you've said. The midstream is very community based. So you have the same handful of different communities that dominate the the diamond market in the midstream. So you've got those various communities at Gud- uh, from Gujarat and, and Rajasthan. You've got various communities in, in Israel and, and, again, in Eastern European uh, descent as well. So you do have specific communities, and those communities have dominated the diamond industry uh, for a long time. There's not a great deal of diversity. It tends to be men. It tends to be right. family businesses that have pass from one generation to another without influx of, 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 other, of other people. And here's the thing, when you speak to an Indian family quite often, what you find anecdotally is that the sons have ended up in the diamond business, but the daughters have ended up being lawyers or economists or doctors hmm. and highly skilled people. And you think, well, why have they not ended up in the business? What has happened there? And so what, what we looked at, and sorry, this is kind of a, a wider aside, but what we saw was that Gemdax as a business is very diverse. We've got a very high proportion of women in our team at a senior level right through. We've got different ethnicities, different religions. Uh, and, and what we thought was we as a business have benefited from diversity, right? We're a very small business. We don't want to say that we'd be representative, but we have definitely benefited greatly from diversity of people, diversity of backgrounds, which has led to diversity of thought, right? And what we did in the early part of last year, so I think in the first quarter 2020, was we did a roadshow in India. We talked about uh, diamonds need women, right? And that was about the idea that we would bring more women into, into the diamond space. And we've seen, and we thought that it's just about harnessing the talent that's already there. We saw that for many people in Indian communities, having two incomes coming into a household was a difference between poverty and middle class. We saw that there was the opportunity of talented women in businesses uh, to, to get more seniority. So, in fact, one of our clients now has a female promoter hmm. uh, in in that kind of in that site holder group. 
So we saw various things here and we built it beyond women as well. We looked at just diversity of opinion, diversity of community involvement. It's been very successful. And what we all we wanted to highlight there was that on average, if you've got more diversity in your team, you will be able to tackle a wider array of business challenges and be able to identify a wider array of opportunities and that there was a commercial rationale for doing so. It's a journey. Uh, many, many of these communities have reasons, cultural reasons right. for being the way they are. But many of them have adopted diversity one way or another, even if it's about as simple as getting wider perspectives from their team. Uh, if it's about getting external consultants from other industries to come in and look at what they're doing, mm. look at how they get more diversity of thought into that business decision making process. So it's 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 a very important thing. And we've seen some good progress being made. Now, to some extent, I guess the market has done extremely well right over the last 12 months. And so when you're doing well, you tend to, on the one hand, feel that the recipe you followed has worked well. Right. But on the other hand, you find, look, I'm making money now. Let me invest in the long term initiatives that will secure the next five years, the next 10 years of our business. And thankfully, we've seen more of the latter in terms of behavior rather than more of the former. Right. Well, well that, that's encouraging because I think, um, you know, across the supply chain, um, you know, that's, you know, we've had a good run in the last, in the last year since the COVID, you know, um, downturn. The, the, the market's come back quite, quite nicely and it's not something that, that, uh, that we, we experience too often, but I think the tendency would be to rest on one's laurels. Um, in, you know, on all, on all matters and particularly on marketing, but also not necessarily thinking where do I need to, um, build strategy to, to look of, at how we can, um, ensure that this, um, momentum continues for the next five, 10 years. Um, so it's, I, I do think that the industry is much more strategically aware, at least, than it was 10, 20 years ago. And, um, maybe that's thanks to, companies such as yourselves and and others that are, that are working in this space um j just to to change the the subject a, a little bit um i, I was uh, you, you, another area that you work on um is as a a de beers broker or is that the correct term even a broker of de beers goods um so firstly uh, what when did um, if you if you don't mind commenting on this um um, when did Gemdex become a uh, De Beers accredited broker? Sure. So we've been working in that function of being, let's call them De Beers brokers, because that's how they're commonly referred to on the right. market. <laughs> uh, so we've been doing this function since 2013. So a little over eight years. Okay. It's a very traditional role, right? I mean, I think De Beers brokers have been part of that De Beers mix since inception of De Beers, actually, I think it's it's a right. business. Well, I, I asked the question because it's it's uh, it's you know you've got you've got the traditional names who've been there for so long, and so I would imagine that you're a bit of a new kid on the block. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, we we are we are, and and look, I mean, when we when we looked at this, we'd seen that brokers De Beers brokers had been in the mix for a really long time. I mean, you'd say over a century. And we could see that they'd played a role in terms of identifying talent to bring to De Beers, 
try to help De Beers with their markets, uh, market distribution. So we'd seen that that De Beers brokers had worked successfully with with that mining firm for for many years, many many years indeed. We got into the space because we see an opportunity. We saw an opportunity to evolve what was being done there. We thought what was being done was was great, but we saw this phase of rapid change presented new opportunities. Now, it's interesting here because I've got a background in financial services, and in finance, you see brokers all the time, you know, engaging on mergers and acquisition transactions, on banking, on insurance, and so forth. And what we saw was that if you do your job right as a broker, you create the win-win, right? So both your client, which is the buyer, and your your kind of the supplier here, which is De Beers, you, you want to be in a position where through your efforts, you've managed to make both parties better off. That, that's got to be the rationale for you being there in the first place. Otherwise, there's no need, no need to have you. So we thought that there was just this period of rapid change. Uh, and we thought there were opportunities. And to give you an example of this, we found that the entire supply chain is under a great deal of scrutiny today. It's not just what De Beers is doing or what Signet is doing or what Arosa is doing. You know, Arosa, for instance, is now partly publicly listed. De Beers is part of Anglo, which is publicly listed. Mm. So those miners always have a degree of public scrutiny. But now the whole supply chain is under scrutiny. So we've talked yeah. about how consumers care about what journey the diamonds have, have been on. So it's necessary more than ever to collaborate. And De Beers and Arosa are our market leaders, and our work focuses on De Beers here, is to we look for those collaboration opportunities between De Beers and our customers and try to figure out how we can ultimately create a more compelling supply chain narrative, how we can ultimately create a more valuable product. And it's been quite successful, uh, and it's the work that we're going to, we feel, will continue for the coming years. The other thing we're able to do is bring analytics to the table because we have a quite a numerical and quantitative DNA in our team. Mm -hmm. So we think analysis and better information systems allow us to identify opportunities between De Beers and our customers. So that's that's the the way we've approached it. It's oh, interesting um, because I think the role of the broker has changed over the years. Um, I think you know during during the days of of supply of choice. There, there was my impression was always that it, the the role of the broker was to fill out the application process, which was long, <laughs> long and tedious. And then I would wonder what's what's left after that, you know. Mm. Um, but but that's no longer relevant, and um, and the application process I think has been simplified to some extent. But um, I guess what you're saying is that it ties into what what you all you know the strategic work that you that you mentioned earlier that. Um, the role of the broker has evolved to to really take on that role, and um, I mean, I'm wondering. You, you mentioned that uh, De Beers gave its input on the um, on the carbon neutral program. Um, you know, to what extent is De Beers um, is De Beers uh, involved in helping with strategy building of its um, of its clients um, in partnership with yourselves? I think that. What, I mean, I guess historically, if you look at De Beers 50 years ago, they were dominating the market very considerably yeah. um, and very decisively. And they would, in some ways, whatever strategy they adopted, 
the rest of the industry followed. And and I think that there's been a and and if you were then a customer of De Beers, it was a transactional or a relationship driven approach. But you wanted to buy diamonds from De Beers and then do whatever you wanted with them, manufacture them or trade them and make money out of that. What has happened is that we have never seen, we don't think there's been an era where De Beers has been more collaborative than they are now, right? So you're you're seeing different types of working arrangements. You're seeing different types. So De Beers themselves have split into different types of contracts now for the first time in their history. Mm. A lot more, there are a lot more conversations about how we can improve this working relationship that go that are in addition to how do we buy more diamonds from you? And I think trying to figure out that collaborative roadmap and and helping our clients execute that and having that conversation with De Beers, this is actually quite a time-consuming task. And we think that this is the role that we play. Now, we don't take it for granted that this role will exist forever, right? We We don't sit here and think, okay, yep, that's another 100 years we're going to be able to clock in as Gemdags. But what we do think is that the industry is going through so many challenges and so many changes in the coming decade that this function, this advisory function, this facilitator function, we believe can bring quite a lot of value to our clients. And that's that's where we're we're coming from on this. Mm, okay, that's in, that's all very interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, there, there is the the dynamic in the market at the moment, and I keep trying to put. Um, those changes that you've that you've alluded to in the context of today's market, and um, you know, I have my own theories about why the RAF market has been so strong and and what's what's influencing the 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 positive momentum that we've seen across all sectors. From you know, it's stemming from retail and and through, but there's also a supply issue I think going on. Um, I'm I'm interested to hear your take on the market. Um, and 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 if you can, um, it, mm-hmm. m- it might be a difficult task, but to put those that that strategic sort of um, discussion um, about sustainability and about um, diversity, um, whatever it may be, in that context of of what's going on, you know, why why is the rough market still so strong out there? Sure. Look, I mean, I think there's a lot going on there, Avi, and you given me i think quite a few different questions there yeah and- i apologize you can you can ignore the the sustainability <laughs> and 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 that stuff just let's focus on the rough market let's talk <laughs> about the rough market i think everybody will have an opinion on this i think so if we look at the rough uh, the rough and polished market i think a lot of us were really surprised at the rapid recovery like you know when i was uh, when i was looking at this in in march april last year i thought we were in for a really bumpy ride. We were very pessimistic. But you could see by August that that pessimism was was misplaced and that the market was rebounding very quickly. And you can see that there are two main things at that time that had happened. And they were both relatively unprecedented things because we, we hadn't seen this type of environment. Well, one of them wasn't unprecedented. I'll come on to that in a moment. But what you saw was the first thing was that consumers were locked down. There were a lot of restrictions in travel and, 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 and just going out of the home. And what that meant was that consumers didn't have the same opportunities to spend money on experiential items. So they couldn't go out and, and eat food at a restaurant. They couldn't do that family holiday where they wanted to. So we saw a move of, of dollars, discretionary dollars, 
to personal goods rather than experiential items. And this is really significant because diamonds have always competed with experiential items for that share of dollar. And what we saw was that there was there was an influx of, of demand towards personal goods, and in particular, luxury personal goods. And, and diamond jewelry massively benefited from this. Right. So the first thing is that although demand might have gone down for many products, demand didn't go down nearly as much as we thought it would for diamond jewelry, and in fact, did, did really well indeed. The second part of that equation was that the two major miners, Alrosa and De Beers, consciously decided to reduce the amount of supply they put on, onto the market. And they did so very emphatically, and they, they cut supply more than polished demand fell. So in other words, the, the reduction in rough offered and the reduction in polished demand, the, the, there became a disparity. Polished demand fell less than the amount of rough offered. So it created this idea of shortage in the market, and that created a lot of price uplift. So you saw at the one hand, you saw consumers continuing to buy diamond jewelry and embracing it, and you saw rough supply being constrained. And, and people really trying to work hard to get the polished diamonds out of their manufacturing operations and onto the market. We saw quite a lot of evidence of that. So those two things created a very rapid recovery. And like I said, we couldn't have predicted that kind of V-shaped recovery that took place right. so quickly. That momentum's carried on. So that momentum started in 2020, second half, third quarter, uh, during the third quarter. And that's carried on until... Uh, this year and we've seen and we've seen you know you could go into lots of details here and really look at the weeds of this there's been stimulus packages at consumers there's been a greater degree of investor interest in the diamond industry so we've seen lots of positive things happen our roaster and De Beers have, have moderated the amount of supply they've been very measured in how much they offer the market compared to previous years so this has been managed really well the question is well what what happens next, but we'll pause that. I think the idea about sustainability and diversity, and this is where I think to try and bring in the other part of the conversation or the other part of the question is, what COVID has done is it's made those issues more relevant to the consumer of today. So we've seen more and more discussion over diversity in the workplace. We've seen more and more uh, environmental consciousness uh, or conscientiousness in consumer purchasing today than before COVID. And, and so these strategic threads may not be the reason why the diamond industry has suddenly bounced back. In fact, they almost have, certainly have not been. But, but, they have, but the change in environment has changed the way companies operate and the way they think about the next five years. So consumers have changed in this time. We will buy different things for different reasons today than we would have two years ago. And that's, I think, the big change. So it's, it's the work in the background, the work that has now become a mode of operation, which wouldn't have been there pre-COVID. Mm. That well, makes um, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, <laughs> I appreciate you bringing those two, two questions together in such an elegant way. Um, just just on, the, on the supply side, um, uh, you know that that the it it seems as as many have noted that the that COVID 
gave the the industry an opportunity to rebalance its um its inventory levels i think and um and bring supply and demand more in in sync with each other and um, but just looking forward um and, and this is where i think um I think there, there's some, I, I don't know if it's reason for concern or optimism, really, that <laughs> it seems to me <laughs> that um, that the supply outlook in terms of rough production is is cautious, that there's, that we, that there, there isn't, um, there isn't going to be this massive influx of diamonds um, that, that are going to be coming to the market. And I wonder if um, De Beers and Orosa foresaw this. I, I, I get the feeling that they, are sending that message out um, mm. to the industry at the moment. You, you know, they're talking about um, the industry needs to be more efficient. That wasn't a message that we heard so of, or so prevalently um, in the past. And, and uh, it, to me, it seems that it's because there's there's growing demand and um, and a lower supply than 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 we used to, and we've got to get used to those um, to that dynamic. So look, it's very interesting. I think that some of the reduction of supply has been driven by circumstance. So just that there has been mining disruptions in in various areas uh, due to COVID restrictions and COVID cases or due to bad weather or whatever you have. You've had a, a kind of a mix of things that have meant that that there's just been less mining output. Yeah. And and I think that's that's been a part and and some of it's just about trying to manage supply onto the market so that market so this is a reversion to some of those supply side things we talked about before so managing the supply that it meets demand more more uh, more accurately where i would where i'd probably differ in opinion is that i believe the midstream is incredibly efficient you know they're very good at what they do they get diamonds from the rough to polish stage very quickly uh, and they do it not by adding a great deal of cost to the supply chain. Uh, so, you know, if you look at traditional measures of, of efficiency, they've been, they've actually done really well. And, and we've often pushed back when people have said the midstream isn't efficient. Um, and, and our friends in the midstream say, yep, the, to, to me or my colleagues to say, yep, the evidence is we don't make any money. Now that didn't hold true in 2020, but, but the lack of profitability in the midstream, which has been talked about a great deal. Yeah. is an outcome of the efficiency. And, and many companies have had to leverage historically quite a great deal to get the kind of return on, on equity that they, they wanted. So mm -hmm. the midstream has been efficient. The challenge for the midstream is twofold, though. One is, how do they contribute to the more compelling supply chain? And that's where the work on sustainability, diversity, and social good really matters. As a midstream, it's not enough any more to be efficient. You've got to do more than that. You've got to add value to the narrative. And the second thing is that we expect the midstream to change a great deal in the next decade, right? Like we've seen discussions about automation. We've seen discussions about different processes and trackability and, and all of that stuff. So yeah. the midstream will evolve. And I think these are important topics, but I feel that the lack of, to go back to your original point, the lack of rough supply coming onto the market uh, is probably a good thing. It means the momentum can continue. We can continue having a, a solid post-COVID season and it gives us some breathing space. The worry would be if too much rough got put on the market all at once. Yeah. Uh, and that then took it out of sync with polished demand.
Mm. Well, it certainly seems that the miners are selling whatever they produce at the moment. Um, even even more than that, that they don't have enough. That they that, but but that's a, a separate discussion. I do love what you say about um, adding value to the narrative, because um, it's it's a it's a, it's really it's it's really such a it's a, such a insightful way to 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 look at the the role of manufacturers and and how they're approaching the market today or any company really because the added value in the supply chain is obvious um and 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 many companies feel that they um that that's enough but it, but it's but it's uh, i think the the big takeaway from our discussion is that it's not enough it's really you've got to add value to the narrative and it's in how you approach the market and how you looking forward to to making a contribution to society, to um, environmental uh, cleanup, and various other issues that um, that brings that added value, and that's going to play more of a prevalent role in the future. I think so. It's um, it's a. I think it's a great thought to end off with um, after our discussion. And uh, thank you so much for for your time and your insights, Anish. It's um, it's a great pleasure as always. No, you're very welcome. And I and I loved having this conversation too and felt that I learned a great deal as well, Avi. And thanks for having me. Great. And uh, we'll, we'll meet again um, and hopefully in, in person soon. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a, a part two sometime to see how that, um, <laughs> that uh, carbon neutral program is going. Okay. With pleasure. Great. With pleasure. Super. So thanks very much. And um, thanks everyone for joining us and listening into our podcast. Have a great day.